Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, the, uh, the notes are in the bulletin, and on the back of the notes is the text. And by a happy providence and a little planning, this morning as we conduct our hundredth study in the Gospel of Luke, um, is the triumphal entry, or as it's known, the triumphal entry, lining up with Palm Sunday. And so it is a fitting passage to look at today. A passage filled with irony and glory and joy and weeping and praise and judgment. I'd like to begin by reading Luke 19, 28 to 44. <clears throat> and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he, draw, when he drew near to Beth's phage in Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Lord God, as we study this grand passage in which so many themes are present, glory, and praise and celebrating who Christ is, and yet there is judgment, there's condemnation. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your law. We want to be with those disciples praising the Lord, not those under his condemnation. Help us now to learn more of who your son is and in the knowledge of him, worship. In Jesus' name, amen. This may look like a rather large and um, ambitious passage. We may not finish all of Jesus' lament over Jerusalem, but I think it's necessary to get both pieces. Not only is the connecting thought of stones present in both, but it sets up the irony. This is an ironic entry. It's called the triumphal entry. And on the one hand, his disciples are rejoicing greatly. They're praising. They're celebrating. We see Jesus weeping. They're expecting the salvation and deliverance of Israel, its exaltation among the nations. Jesus announces it'll be surrounded and torn to the ground stone by stone. This is the way our Lord enters, not with pomp and an army and gold and jewels, but riding humbly on a donkey. Such is the way of our God. So we will look at this passage, which I've titled The Return of the King, and if you're wondering, return, that is returning later. There's a notion of return here. We'll get to it. We're going to look at it in two parts. First, the triumphal entry of the Messianic king. And second, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. First, let us look at the triumphal entry of the Messianic king in verses 28 through 40. And this, this text, subtext, is broken up into three parts. We have the preparation for the king, the exaltation of the king, and the condemnation of the king. We begin with the preparation of the king. When these things, when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. 
When he drew near to Bethsphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. We have been journeying to Jerusalem now for over a year in our study. All the way back in chapter 9, verse 51, the Gospel of Luke took a sharp, focused turn. Jesus had been generally ministering in the area of Galilee. But in chapter 9, verse 51, we read, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so from 951 all the way through the end of our passage, Jesus has been journeying to Jerusalem, by far and away the largest portion of Luke's gospel. The next passage, Jesus is in Jerusalem. In verse 45, he enters the temple. So here we are. Here is our final approach. The journey is over, and it culminates in a spontaneous outburst of praise and worship as the king enters into the royal city. But first, Luke gives us the preparation for the king. We begin with the setting. Immediately, it's connected to what came before. You remember last week, we looked at Jesus' final parable before entering Jerusalem, the parable of the ten minas about a nobleman who is leaving, departing to a far country to receive a kingdom. And there were three varied responses. His citizens hated him. They sent a delegation after him to appeal to the king or the overarching ruler to whom he was receiving the kingdom, saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. There were ten servants entrusted with a mina each, a meager amount, a couple thousand dollars. And most of them were faithful and rewarded at the Lord's return with his kingdom. But one of them was unfaithful, stripped of what he had, condemned, called wicked, that also sets up what is happening here. Because Jesus told that parable, if you turn back to 1911, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. You see, there's this great expectation that any day now, at any time now, the Lord God will keep his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He will vindicate, free Israel from her foreign oppressors. They are, after all, under the thumb of Roman rule. And the promises of the kingdom, you can see them in numerous Old Testament passages. Psalm 2 is a simple and clear example. And they're looking for that type of deliverance, and they're expecting it to appear, and he tells them, no, it's not, it's not going to appear immediately. I'm going to depart. I'm going to go receive a kingdom, and there's going to be a time while I'm gone where you will be tested in your faithfulness. So he's just said that, and that links, I believe, to what we see here. And now we get the location. This is the Mount of Olives. So outside of Jerusalem, Jerusalem is on a hill. There's, there are valleys, and there's a, another mount, Mount of Olives. It's where they grow olives. And Bethany and Bethphage, as best as we understand it, are on the other side of that. So he's coming up this, this lesser hill outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's not yet in sight, and he's cresting the top of the Mount of Olives. And, and as we get to later in this passage, he will, for the first time in this journey, see Jerusalem. And that's the location. We are, we are just outside of Jerusalem. And as he approaches, our Lord gives instructions. The two disciples, we don't know who they are. It could be Peter and John. It could be any. It doesn't even have to be of the twelve. And he gives them instructions to go into a village and get a colt. Probably the village of Bethany, we don't know. That's not important. But, but I want you to notice the specificity and the control of our Lord over these events. Now, up until this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus has been hiding to some degree his identity, not speaking openly, charging some people not to say anything. His favorite moniker for himself is subtle. It's the son of man, which can just mean mortal. It's what Ezekiel is called numerous times. It's subtle because there's a very different son of man who shows up in Daniel who will receive a kingdom and honor from the Ancient of Days. And Jesus eventually makes it clear when he uses the title son of man on himself, that's what he means. But it's a subtle title. Jesus has not been overt in his declarations to the crowds and the masses of his identity, his deity, his kingship. That changes in this passage. 
That changes in this passage. He, he, he comes out clearly and openly and boldly. And it begins with him sending his disciples to get the donkey, the colt. So we read, verse 30, Go into the village in front of you where you are entering, and you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And not only does he know there's going to be this colt tied there, he anticipates opposition. If someone says to you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Notice now what Jesus' term for himself is, the Lord. Now Luke has called him that, and the disciples have called him that. But to my knowledge, this is the first time in Luke's gospel where Jesus refers to himself that way. It's not the rabbi, it's not the teacher, it's not the son of man needs the donkey. The Lord needs the donkey. Jesus is becoming more overt and clear publicly of his identity. And so he sends them ahead. Point three, it is done exactly as Jesus instructed and as he foretold. Exactly as Jesus instructed and foretold. And so we see here some of his divinity, some of his power, his knowledge. Previously, he called Zacchaeus by name, spotting him in the tree. How do they know that? Supernatural knowledge. Here, he knows there's going to be a cult. He knows where it's going to be. He knows someone's going to challenge those taking it because it looks like rustling. And it happens exactly, exactly as he predicts and foretold. So point one, what I want you to understand, what Luke wants us to understand is this. Our Lord Jesus was not subject to some catastrophic failure in his plan. And that's the way some read the gospel accounts. It was going so well, this revival movement, and then accidentally, sadly, tragically, it ended in calamity and disaster. No. Here's your blank. Jesus is absolutely sovereign. He is sovereign. He is in control over the events of his death. Jesus is taking full control. He's already told his disciples repeatedly, previously in this chapter, he knows why he's going to Jerusalem. The mission is for him to die. That's why he's going. His death is not an accident. It's the plan and the purpose. And so Jesus takes control over his entry. He is sovereign over the events of his death because his entry, next point, perfectly fulfills the Scripture. Jesus has mastered the Bible, and he knows that in Daniel 9, chapter 24, a prediction is made about when the Messiah will arrive. Turn to, turn to Daniel chapter 9. This is truly remarkable, the specificity of Scripture, the accuracy of Scripture. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel has read Jeremiah, and he knows that the captivity will end at 70 years. And he prays, what will happen next, Lord? And what will be Israel's future? And Gabriel brings Daniel an answer. And in verse 24 of chapter 9, we read this, prophetic calendar for Israel. Seventy weeks, or literally seven sevens, are decreed about your people in your holy city. What will take place in those 77s? To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, to anoint a most holy place, knowing therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, and that's the word Messiah, Messiah, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in troubled time, and after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Again, that word for Messiah. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war, desolations and decree. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half the week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. But I want you to focus on this coming of a Messiah who will be cut off. 62 weeks after the rebuilding, and as best as we construct it, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, we can turn back to Luke, is to the day fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. It had to be this day and this year for this 
day of atonement, this Passover. And Jesus is sovereignly in control. God's word will not be broken. And Jesus fulfills that prediction. But there's something even more significant as, as we look at Jesus' approach. The, um, the, the Mount of Olives is significant. Turn, turn to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 9. Not only is Jesus' timing biblically precise, but Jesus' root is remarkable. Now, if you remember, Ezekiel is the prophet. He's, there's three prophets functioning at the same time. There's Ezekiel, there's Daniel, and there's Jeremiah. Um, Jeremiah is in Jerusalem until the end. Daniel's taken in the first wave of deportation. He's in the capital city in Babylon. And Ezekiel is with the refugees, those who've been taken captive from Israel. But he's in the countryside. He's God's prophet to the masses of Israel there. And they want to hear a word of, will God deliver Israel? Because this took place over waves. And Ezekiel has to tell them, no, no, Israel will not be victorious. Israel will be defeated. But one of the things the Lord wants to make clear is that when Nebuchadnezzar does break down the walls and enter the temple and take the holy instruments and the gold, it is not as though Nebuchadnezzar has defeated Yahweh. And so over the course of two chapters in Ezekiel, what we see is God depart Israel. The glory of the Lord is leaving ship as it were. And so chapter 9, verse 3, the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherubim on which it rested to the threshold of the house. So after Solomon dedicated the temple, the glory of the Lord, which was a focused, localized um, evidence of God's glory, a shining cloud, and it sat between the wings of the angels on the Ark of the Covenant at the mercy seat. And here in verse 3, It went up from there to the threshold of the house. Jump over to chapter 10, verse 4. And and what happens is Ezekiel weaves this departure of the glory of God through the narrative. Verse 4, The glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with a cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of God. So he's left the Holy of Holies. Now he's, now it, the glory of the Lord, is at the court Verse 18 of chapter 10. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went with wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord. And the glory of the God of Israel is over them. So the, the, the route has been from the Holy of Holies to the court to the east gate. Chapter 11, verse 22. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. What mountain do you think that is? It's Mount of Olives. And so Jesus' approach, you can go back to Luke, here's your blank, Jesus' path exactly retraces in reverse the departure of the glory of the Lord from the temple. So in Ezekiel's day, God left Israel. His glory departed so that when Nebuchadnezzar took over the temple, he took over an empty building. And now the glory of the Lord, evident in the sun, is returning. That's why I titled this The Return of the King. The glory of the Lord has returned. He is entering the city. And where's the first place Jesus goes when he enters Jerusalem? You can see it right there in verse 45, the temple, the Mount of Olives, down the Kidron Valley, up into Jerusalem, straightway to the temple, and what does he do in the temple? He takes charge and he cleanses it. That is not incidental. So Jesus is sovereign, he's in control of his approach, he's fulfilling Scripture's timetable, he's fulfilling Scripture's path, this is the exact reverse of God's departure of his glory. Our Lord is sovereign and he is in control and he is taking charge here. So they go and they get the donkey and they bring it to him. Now why, why the donkey? One last passage. Jump to Zechariah chapter 9. You remember Zechariah? We studied a few years ago. And again, there's more scripture to fulfill. Zechariah 9.9. 9. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so that emphasis of a donkey that no one has ridden means a young donkey. It's, it's, it's specific fulfillment. It's not just any donkey. It's a young, relatively newborn donkey. No one's ridden on it. And so Scripture again is fulfilled, and our Lord is active in fulfilling Scripture as its author, as its perfect interpreter. He is fulfilling Scripture upon Scripture. We're going to see more Scriptures quoted that he fulfills. So Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is, is exactly as he instructed and foretold, according to his sovereign plan, perfectly fulfilling Scripture. His disciples go, it's exactly as he said, they return Now we move to the exaltation of the king. The exaltation of the king. Now some of the other gospel accounts focus on the crowds. Luke's focus here is on the disciples. So we don't know what the crowds are doing, but here at least are some genuine people. If you think of the terms of our last parable last week, here are some faithful servants. Here's a multitude of his disciples, and Jesus they put them on the donkey on their clothes, and they spread their clothes on the ground. What's going on there? Well, it's an indication of submission, of being under his authority. Um, frequently in the Old Testament, enemies are spoken of being placed under your feet. Listen to uh, Psalm 47.3. The Lord subdued peoples under us, the nations under our feet. Or most familiar, Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, make Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So to place your garments under someone is to symbolically place yourself under them. It's just a little more comfortable than having the donkey ride over you. So you lay your garments on the ground. And it's also a way of showing holiness. Here's one who is worthy of honor. But his disciples are hailing him as king. And to hail someone as king is simultaneously to recognize yourself as their subject. Remember this last week. The issue is not what you feel about Jesus, what you sing about Jesus. Do you want him as your king? Do you want him to rule over you? Do you want him to call the shots in your life? Or do you not want this man to rule over you like his citizens? These disciples want Jesus to rule over them. And they are symbolically placing themselves under his authority. They're symbolically placing themselves under his feet. That's what they're doing. And I'm supposed, I hope it's going to catch on. We know there's a great crowd that's been traveling with Jesus ever since he began heading to Jerusalem. The other Gospels tell us people from Jerusalem came out to see. Luke's just focusing on the disciples. They are hailing him as king, showing him honor, submission to him. Jesus rides the colt over their garments. And then the multitude of his disciples greatly rejoiced. They greatly rejoiced. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the ground. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. This is the culmination of three years of ministry. This is the culmination of all of his sermons, of all of his teaching, of all of his miracles, all his mighty works that Luke has recorded. Most recently, the giving of sight to the blind beggar, raising the widow's son, um, casting out a legion of demons. In every way, Jesus has demonstrated his power, his divine authority. And, And it comes to their minds as they approach Jerusalem for this feast, and they just burst out in loud, spontaneous praise. And their praise is according to Scripture, saying this, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now last year for Palm Sunday, we studied um, extensively Psalm 118, which is what they're quoting. We'll deal with it briefly here, but you can go back and check that out. Psalm 118 is a royal psalm of a king leading God's people to the temple for worship after the Lord has given him a great deliverance and victory over his enemies. He has brought salvation to his people, and the king is leading a throng to worship at the temple. It ends at the temple where he says, open the righteous gates for me, and the people in the temple cry out, and they open it, and he enters in and turn to Psalm 118. We'll look at this briefly. Briefly. 
This is one of the last of the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. It's a song for going up to Jerusalem to the temple for worship. And it begins as a mass corporate praise, antithemally, crying out in the first verses, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for his good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. And out of this mass singing comes a singular voice recounting how he was in a tight place, he was beset by enemies on every side, he trusted in the Lord. Verse 10, all the nations surrounded me in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. And so here is this king, this warrior king, who trusted in God in his distress. God delivered him. He accredits the victory to the Lord. Verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. Verse 17, I shall not die, but shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. And then he arrives at the temple, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. And then the people respond antithemally, this is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This king recognizes to some degree he was small, he was not esteemed greatly. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I think that ties in, actually, with Luke, where Jesus says, if you had known even you this day. So this psalm anticipates a great warrior king who's trusted in the Lord, who's been saved from death by the Lord, delivered from the Lord, brought salvation to his people, going to the temple to worship. And somehow his disciples piece this together because verse 25, save us we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now we may have noticed that the disciples altered one word in that, didn't they? What word did they alter? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Luke, blessed is the king comes in the name of the Lord. What is implicit in Psalm 118 is now made explicit. To turn back to Luke 19, his disciples therefore recognize Jesus. We've already seen by throwing their garments on the ground as king. Now they clearly attribute to him that title. This is the one prophesied of, spoken of, who would lead God's people to true worship. This is the one who would trust in the Lord and through his faithfulness, the Lord would give a deliverance for his people. This is the one headed to the temple now to worship is exactly where Jesus is going. And so they burst out in praise. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, directly attributing that psalm and its fulfillment to the Lord Jesus. And then they add, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That also should sound familiar. It's not a citation of the Old Testament, but it sounds awfully similar to something the angels said in Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, the angels say, let me turn there, 2.14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So in Luke chapter 2, the angels announce peace on earth through the advent of the Messiah. Here the disciples announce peace in heaven. Why might there... What about Jesus' arrival to Jerusalem and the work he will accomplish there will bring peace to heaven? It's an interesting question. I understand Jesus' work bringing peace to the earth. But how, how is it that, that Jesus' entry and the work he's about to do will bring peace to heaven? Well, come back next week. That will be our focus. I'll let, you, I'll let you chew on that. But they're ascribing praise to him. They've clearly, overtly identified him as the messianic king, the son of David. And they herald him. They recognize him as their Lord. They humble themselves. They place themselves under his feet in joy. Good for them. Excellent. But there's another group in the crowd, isn't there? Just as there were in the parable, there are citizens who hated his rule and said, we don't want this man to rule over us. So now, the Pharisees make their final appearance in Luke's gospel. This is the last time they're named. They blend into the group of the scribes, the leaders, 
the chief priests. And they're offended by this. You see, Jesus' disciples have rightly identified who he is. And even if they don't fully have their heads wrapped around his mission, what type of salvation he will bring, they, they understand he's about to do something momentous and great in Jerusalem. And he's the king, and he's coming to his city of David. Praise God. Glory to God in the highest. Peace in heaven. Pharisees are offended by this. We get to the condemnation of the king. The Pharisees are offended by this. They demand that Jesus rebuke his disciples. And here's the implicit logic. Your disciples have gone too far. They've given you titles and honor and praise that far outstrips who you really are. Notice the title they call him. Teacher. There's no respect. There's no reverence. You're just a teacher. Maybe, maybe you're a teacher who can do some powerful works, although we kind of think probably it's because Satan's working with you. But you're not the messianic king. You're not the great deliverer. You're not David's greater son. Your disciples are blaspheming. Tell them to be quiet. That's what a righteous man would do. He wouldn't put up with it. That's the logic. They want him to rebuke his disciples. Just like the citizens who don't want this man to rule over us. They reject that. And Jesus responds with an enigmatic statement. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Which I think is very often misunderstood. That is a reference, I believe, to Habakkuk 2, 11 and 12. I'll read for you. And in Habakkuk, uh, an oracle is going out against the Chaldeans, otherwise known as the Babylonians. And the Lord says... For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. And in Habakkuk's context, the meaning is this. Your own houses are witnesses against you, how you obtained them, how you built them, how you claimed them through bloodshed, through cruelty. They will cry out against you. So what's, what's going on here? The Pharisees tell Jesus, Rebuke your disciples. You're not who they say you are. That's blasphemy. And what Jesus, I believe, says to them is this. You've seen full evidence. You know perfectly well the very stones of Jerusalem. And I believe it's the stones of Jerusalem because he picks up that word stone there. Look in verse 44. They will not leave one stone upon another. It's not the stones on the ground. It's the stones of the city and most specifically the stones of the temple, I believe, that he's referring to. They will cry out against you. They are witnesses to the ample evidences you have seen. If my disciples didn't declare to you clearly who I am, the buildings would do it. Which is to say you stand condemned. You're inexcusable. Your ignorance is not innocent. You're guilty. He pronounces condemnation on them. So it's the condemnation of the king. They rebuke him. He condemns them by citing the words of Habakkuk 2.11. And so we see the beginning of the opposition. Um, you might be hopeful. The disciples are, are on point here. They're praising God. They've, they've made some biblical connections. They're humbling themselves. They're evidencing their submissiveness. They're ascribing the right title to him, the right psalm to him. And yet we know it will not be the great triumph they envisioned in Jerusalem. And so these Pharisees, last time they show up in Luke's gospel, they, they portend what is coming. They, this is the first of the sour and dour notes that will greet us as we move further into Jerusalem and his week there. And now we get the massive contrast. So we, we see in the disciples joy, exaltation, celebration, praise. They're, they're, just, they're just absolutely beaming. And you might think, well, the king, the king would be delighted in that. You picture Jesus just smiling and pleased and Yes, this is good. He's weeping. He's weeping. This is an ironic entry. The king of kings, the God who made the universe, who deserves all honor and all glory, doesn't come in a mighty caravan with an army and gold. He comes on a donkey. His disciples are rejoicing, and he is weeping. He knows the plan. He knows what will happen. And this is one of the important things to grasp when we factor in the sovereignty of God. We tend to think that if God is sovereign, 
then he can't emotionally react to the things that he has planned and purposed. And Israel's rejection was certain. Jesus has already declared they're going to reject him. He's not somehow hoping maybe, maybe they'll accept me. He knows the way it's going to go, and he knows the consequences. He will announce the judgment, and yet he weeps. And unless you want to accuse our Lord of theater, deception, this is genuine and real. God can decree the judgment, and God can weep over the judgment. And if you and I have a hard time understanding that, let us just worship and close our mouths. Jesus has already announced what will happen. He told the parable of the, the fig tree that bore no fruit. Jesus knows what's coming for himself and for Jerusalem, and yet he weeps. So God can sovereignly decree and determine what will come, and God can react emotionally to it. And yeah, I, I don't fully grasp how all that comes together, but we just worship he is greater than us. He is mightier than us. He is more wonderful than us. Our Lord is weeping. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. The, the verb there is strong. You say he sobbed over it. Just not a little tear in his eye. He is weeping, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. Just like the king in Psalm 118. They will tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Three points here quickly. First, Jesus' lamentation over Jerusalem. There's a longing and a yearning in our Savior's heart, even for those he knows have rejected and will reject him. And Israel's crime, Jerusalem's crime is this. They are ignorant of the means of peace. They're ignorant of the means of peace. That's what he says. Would that you, even you, had known on this day. There's a connection again to Psalm 118. The things that make for peace. I think there's two errors here that, that the Israel faces in large part. And we know there are exceptions. There's this large crowd of disciples. We've seen converts along the way. But by and large, Israel does not know the things that make for peace. I think the problem is twofold. One, the peace that they are looking for is the wrong peace. They want the peace that comes when Rome is shoved away. They want the peace that comes with economic prosperity. They want the peace that comes when make Israel great again happens. That's the peace they're looking for. Oh, and make no mistake, the Messianic kingdom will be glorious. It's not as though the thing they desire is a bad thing. It's just too little of a thing. They fail to recognize their enmity, their hostility with God. They aren't looking for that peace. And so consequently, they aren't aware of the peace they need, and they're not aware of the one who brings it. As, as early as the opening chapter of Luke Jesus is spoken of in the prophecy about his birth to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Here is the one who's the prince of peace. They don't get it. Maybe he'll deliver us from Rome, some of them think. Maybe he's a prophet. Maybe he's from God. Who knows? But they're unaware of their need of peace with God. I, 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 let me just pause and stress this. If, if you are not clothed in the lamb, if you don't welcome him as your king, if you, like the citizens, say, I won't let this man rule over me, you are not at peace with God. He is your enemy. You have made him such. And your sorely provoked enemy, even now, reaches out with an offer of peace. He sent his son. Would that you, would that I, would know the things that make for peace. Here is the one who makes peace. Not, not a peace that comes with financial security in your best life now, but the peace that comes with knowing Jesus Christ through faith. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we are having peace with God. 
You can have peace with God, and here is the one who makes peace with God. This is what Israel and Jerusalem are ignorant of, and their ignorant is cataclysmic. Jerusalem is ignorant of the means of peace because they will not. Now they cannot know. This also ties in with the parable before. How did Jesus close the parable of the ten minas? To the one who is, where is it? I tell you, to everyone who has, more will be given. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Israel had a light shining in their midst. Their Messiah came, their King came, the Son of God came. They were given abundant witness and testimony again and again through his teaching, through his miracles, through his interaction with religious leaders, and they did not know. And now Jesus announces, therefore, you cannot know. That's another sober warning for for you and for me. If, If you're thinking about making your mind up about who Jesus is, be warned. I had a professor at college who said the most dangerous place a person can be is thinking about repenting. And you may kid yourself thinking you have weeks, you have years. Esau, we read in Hebrews 12, Esau sought for the blessing with tears though he found no place for repentance. The word is here. The Savior is here today. And God can justly, he does justly blind and harden people in their rebellion. We've seen this already in Luke's gospel, have we not? In Luke chapter 8, verse 10, the disciples come to him and say, Why you, what's this parable thing? And he said to them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. That was when Jesus first introduced this second theme of his ministry, not just a ministry of bringing light and life and knowledge, but hiding and obfuscating truth. A little later in chapter 8, we read this. This is what ties in, I think, with the parable of the minas and the situation. Here's the warning. Take care then how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And for the one who has not, even what he thinks he has, will be taken away. You're sitting here this morning. You're hearing God's word, God's truth. His Messiah is front and center. Be careful what you do with that. There came a day where because Jerusalem would not know, they could not know. God said, that's it. You've had your opportunity. You've had your witness. You've chosen rebellion. Be hardened in that state. Now, Jesus said, they are hidden from your eyes. It's too late for Jerusalem. We've seen our last pre-cross convert in Zacchaeus. And likewise, there may come a day where you cannot believe. So today, today, if you're hearing God's word, do not harden your heart as in the wilderness. That's the warning. Jerusalem has waited too long. They've rebelled for too long. And now they're blinded. That comes to Jesus' condemnation. Jesus' condemnation over Jerusalem. This is tragic. The days will come, verse 43, and and get the irony. They're expecting the kingdom to appear at any minute. The Romans will be obliterated. Israel will be exalted. All the nations will come like they once did, like the Queen of Sheba, like Tyre from Lebanon, like the rulers of the world coming to honor Israel, exalted and lifted up. No, Jerusalem's going down. Jerusalem will be surrounded and torn down. Jerusalem will be surrounded and torn down. And this was fulfilled literally to that generation in 70 AD. When the Roman general Titus, after Israel had one too many times tried an insurrection, surrounded the city, and obliterated it, tore it apart. And not just the walls and the stones. These are the stones, by the way, that are stones of witness, stones that are crying out. He's the Messiah, you know. He's David's son, you know. He is the king. They'll be torn down. And again, literal fulfillment, not one stone we left upon another. The, the temple which later became known as Herod's Temple, the temple that was begun to be built by Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. That temple was later expanded upon by Herod. It's a mighty edifice. 
And they did take it apart stone by stone. The only thing that's left now, you know, is the wailing wall, kind of the foundation wall of the temple. There's not a stone left on top of a stone right now. Terrible destruction, terrible suffering and slaughter. Um, Josephus records thousands upon thousands who were crucified and killed. And since that destruction, until just recently, Israel is scattered among the nations And wherever they went, they seemed to be harassed, persecuted. This judgment has come upon them. There's expectation that the kingdom will appear immediately, but because they did not know the ways for peace, their destruction is what is imminent. Then finally, Jesus gives the explanation for the destruction of Jerusalem. And again, it's not their exceeding wickedness in various things. It's, It's one thing. It culminates in one thing. We tend to think of sin in the horizontal realms as the most wicked. So mass shootings at schools, that's the terrible things. Or, or war crimes, those are the terrible things. Or social injustice, those are the terrible things. The, the worst sins are vertical. Self-righteousness, pride, unbelief. These are the things that most provoke our God. And so Jesus gives the reason for this judgment. Because you did not know or acknowledge the time of your visitation. God determined a time where the Messiah would visit his people, where God would dwell with his people. And they didn't know it. They did not know the time of their visitation. That's a blank. That's a phrase picked up by Peter in 1 Peter 2. God's visitation of his people took place most specifically here at the advent of Jesus. But again, this continues on today. First Peter reminds his readers to conduct themselves among the Gentiles with honor so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your deeds and glorify God on the day of their visitation. What he's saying is this, and Peter, conduct yourself in a holy, submissive, honoring way so that when... The gospel comes to these Gentiles who see you. They will remember your conduct as Christians on the day of their visitation. And the implication being that they may come to faith. So again, for some of you, today may be a day of your visitation. Know it. Respond to it. Recognize this one as your king and your Lord. You don't, you don't make Jesus Lord. He is Lord but you can acknowledge him as your Lord. You, you don't make Jesus Lord. People say, I made Jesus Lord in my life. You must have an awful lot of authority then. No, you, you, you recognize him. You hail and herald him. Some of you will get that on the drive home. You herald him as Lord, as your Lord. The disciples knew the day of their visitation, even if they hadn't pieced everything together, but Jerusalem, no, Jerusalem is blind. Finally, and turn to Romans 1. You, you may be tempted to think, well, it's an honest mistake, isn't it? The Old Testament's kind of confusing. Messianic ex- expectations blend of a conquering Messiah and a Messiah who puts up a kingdom. Yes, 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 there are suffering Messiah themes, but, but can you really blame them? They had bad leaders, after all, who taught them wrongly. And, and you know... They knew their Bibles. They probably studied them and memorized them more than we do. No, the whole point of this is such ignorance is inexcusable. And in Romans 1, we'll, cl- we'll close here. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul, in setting up his explanation and exposition of the gospel, first has to explain why God is angry. And again, we won't read through the whole passage. At the end of this passage, I want you to think of this as root fruit, okay, root and fruit. The fruit on the tree of sin are things like Romans 1, verses uh, 29 and following. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Okay, so there are your horizontal, or many of your horizontal issues. That is not the root of the tree of sin. That's the full-grown fruit. So that mass shootings and war crimes and things like that, that is the full-grown, gone-to-seed fruit of sin. Its root is much more subtle and terrible. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God 
This is what you need peace from. You need peace from God's wrath. Is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. There's a truth in sin, men, you and I, and in our unbelief, we're trying to ignore, trying to hold down. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. What are you talking about, Paul? Well, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. That's why I don't believe in atheists. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in them. The excuse of I didn't know there was a God is no excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. Now, there's the crime. I'm going to exchange the glory of God for stuff, for dirt, for money, for fame, for sex, for pleasure, for ex- whatever idol you want to pick. And the, consequently, I will hold down that knowledge and I'll say, we don't know. It's no excuse. It's no excuse for the world in Romans, and it's no excuse for Jerusalem here. Their condemnation is precisely due to their ignorance. It is their ignorance. The thing they're judged for is they didn't know. That's why they're judged. What's their crime? They didn't know. They did not know the things that make for peace. They did not know the time of their visitation. See, if you're sitting here today and you're hearing this and, and you don't recognize this as true, you're, you're, you're the very fact of your blindness and your unbelief is the clearest evidence of your need for peace. The Savior came to Jerusalem to die. David's greater son arrived, heralded. He entered into his city humbly. He came to save. And there are those faithful servants who herald him as king, who place themselves willingly, joyfully under his feet. There are his enemies who oppose him. And there are others who try to make a claim of ignorance. I just don't know. We need a little more evidence. We'll make up our minds soon. Because they did not see, they cannot see. It ends here. That the teams are set. And there is no switching of teams in Jerusalem, his enemies are his enemies, his disciples are his disciples. The Lord has come to his house. I'm going to call the worship team up as we close in our final song. And I just encourage you, encourage you to search your heart, to beg the Lord to give you the faith that rejoices in the Messiah who willingly recognizes him as your king, who doesn't resent and resist his rule rejoices in it. Please stand as we sing, crown him with many crowns.